Section 10 of Social Life in England, 1750 to 1850, by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 4 Gunning's Reminiscences of Cambridge, Part 1. An English university so closely connected with New England must have special interest to you. Yet those who have been to our Cambridge would find it indeed hard to recognize it in the place I am now about to put before you. It changed beyond recognition within the long lifetime of the author, whose reminiscences, put down during his long last illness, will be the text of my lecture. He had remarkable opportunities of observing university life, and many faculties of making the best of them. His hard, shrewd face looks down upon us when we take our wine after dinner as guests in the combination room of Christ's College, and is an indication of his character. He was no Boswell, for he lacked appreciation of the men he described, and though capable of devoted friendship, had little affection for many of them. But he is an admirable raconteur with a shrewd eye for the absurdity of a situation, and will, I think, prove excellent company for us during the time at my disposal. Many of my audience have doubtless visited our English Cambridge before this war broke out, and will be able to check the remarks I am about to make. An easy run from London brings the traveller to a railway station so inconvenient that it could only have been imagined in a bad dream, and he finds himself in the outskirts of a fair-sized and rapidly increasing town. A dull drive through a street of shops brings you to the colleges, and if you happen to arrive at midday, you would find a stream of undergraduates in cap and gown, with women students from Girton and Newnham, issuing from or flowing into the lecture-rooms. Supposing your host to be in his college, you would find the courts populous with undergraduates, some in cap and gown, some in flannel blazers, and some, pro pudor, in evening pumps, or even in carpet slippers. If you asked a question of one of them, you would be answered obligingly, if not with elaborate courtesy. Your host, a fellow of the college, would probably be working with a few pupils, and when they withdrew you would either be given lunch in his rooms or taken to his house. A few friends would be asked to meet you, the meal would be, I hope, a good one, and several would not even take the wine which was provided. Why I say this will appear later. If it were summer, you would have been taken for a walk in the backs, and have found the narrow river crowded with boats full of gaily flannelled men and a good many ladies, and I think you would have admired the brightness of the scene. You might witness a cricket match, and later in the evening have watched the eights practising with their coaches, running, cycling, or riding beside them. If you dined in the college hall, you would find a good, if not elaborate, dinner neatly served, and the company, if not brilliant, would be at least variegated. In the combination room, over a modest glass of port and perhaps a cigar, the conversation would turn on many topics. The presiding fellow, who has been everywhere, would be laying down the law to a somewhat inattentive audience, about hotels in Budapest and the old college friends he had met on the Yukon River. A famous man of letters would be giving his views on finance and town planning. 
a chemist and a mathematician would be absorbed in discussing bird life a great authority on art might be explaining his views on the religion of the future to a d d who ought to know being by repute a heretic but is somewhat inattentive as he is trying to listen and at the same time endeavouring to explain to another man what are the prospects of the college boat an anthropologist of european fame is being instructed by the junior fellow how the last fashionable dance ought to be performed and the tutor a silent man suddenly breaks in with a question as to the progress of one of his pupils naturally the guest is not neglected he would perhaps rather listen especially as every one is talking about something he does not make his specialty as all sensible people do after dinner it may be our supposed guest is taken to the master's lodge and finds several undergraduates on terms of easy familiarity with the dons and even with the in old days unapproachable and awful head of the college i am of course speaking of happier days before the war had depleted our numbers and when we all felt friendly and sociable in every scene in this imaginary sketch the contrast with cambridge in the eighteenth century would be apparent except for parts of the buildings all is changed in one respect the traveller who visited cambridge a century ago would have had the advantage had he approached by either of the hills by mattingley or the gog magogs the town would have appeared more beautiful than now here is a description of his first view of the place by john henry newman in eighteen thirty two who was too great an admirer of the beauties of oxford to fail to see how lovely was her rival cambridge july sixteenth eighteen thirty two having come to this place with no anticipations i am quite taken by surprise and overcome with delight this doubtless you will think premature in me inasmuch as i have seen yet scarcely anything and have been writing letters of business to mr rose and rivingtons but really when i saw at the distance of four miles on an extended plain wider than oxford amid thicker and greener groves the alma mater cantabrigiensis lying before me i thought i should not be able to contain myself and in spite of my regret at her present defects in past history and all that is wrong about her footnote he means that cambridge was and always has been liberal and protestant and footnote i seemed about to cry floriat in aeternum surely there is a genius loki here as in my own dear home and the nearer i came to it the more i felt its power i do really think the place finer than oxford though i suppose it isn't for every one says so i like the narrow streets they have a character and they make the university buildings look larger by contrast i cannot believe that king's college is not far grander than anything with us the stone too is richer and the foliage more thick and encompassing i found my way from the town to trinity college like old oedipus without guide by instinct how i know not i never studied the plan of cambridge ill-paved ill-drained as was the town narrow as were the streets it must have been picturesque to the eye and the colleges unspoiled by modern additions were very attractive to judge by the old prince on the whole however i think our verdict 
would have been that old Cambridge was a pleasanter place for us to explore than for its inhabitants to live in. Let us now exercise our imagination a little more and try to fancy what a day spent in Cambridge would have been like to a stranger toward the close of the eighteenth century. One thing I think may be assumed to be unaltered. Had he come to visit a friend, he would have been hospitably received. Let us suppose that he also arrived at midday in summer, when it was full term, and that, to quote Wordsworth, he at the hoop alighted famous inn. He certainly would not have met a troop of young men, let alone maidens, going in and out of lecture. The lectures were over, and the lecture rooms were never crowded. Perhaps some noisy fellow commoners might have stared and jeered at him, and quite possibly have insulted him. Most colleges were very empty of students, many rather dilapidated. He would have dined in the middle of the day, and the hall would have been hot, noisy, and probably ill-ordered. Joints were passed from one diner to another and carved according to taste. At the high table where he would dine would be the resident fellows, a stray nobleman or so, and a few rich young men called fellow commoners. A good deal of beer would be drunk, and most of the company would be rather cross and sleepy after the meal. The fellows, who were nearly all clergymen, would show themselves obsequious to the noblemen, uneasily familiar with the fellow commoners, and completely oblivious of the scholars and pensioners who dined at the lower table, and of the sizers or poor scholars who in some cases, certainly at an earlier date, waited on them, and after dinner ate what had been left on the high table. There were no games to watch, and in the afternoon probably our guest would be mounted and taken for a ride. In the evening supper would be served, and perhaps a considerable amount of wine drunk in the combination room. As political feeling ran high at the time, the company would probably have quarrelled. Very few fellows had ever left their native country. A few had hardly known any places save their homes and their university. Some must have been strangely uncouth in manner and appearance. Most of them were, as I have said, clergymen, and of course bachelors, but their practice of celibacy was not always such as to fulfil the ideals of the advocates of that holy state in the days of the saints. But we have not yet finished our day. Supper would have been followed by an adjournment to a small, dirty, ill-lighted public-house, and the walk home to bed might not be inaptly compared to the convolutions of a corkscrew. That such was the university in the days of our author, I fancy some extracts from the book before me will convince you. He admits that in his youthful days Cambridge had sunk lower than it ever had before, and he trusted that such days as his might never recur. We have kept him waiting too long. Let me present you to Henry Gunning Esquire Bettle of the University of Cambridge. He tells us he was the son of a clergyman in the neighborhood and the descendant of that admirable prelate, Dr. Peter Gunning, Bishop of Ely, in the reign of Charles II. He entered Christ's College in 1784 and died in 1855, well over eighty years of age, after a life spent in the university. During his long last illness he dictated his reminiscences. He had, at an earlier period, written some memoirs, but on reflection, after a serious illness, 
he had decided to burn all the papers. In his own words, I kept an account of the decision of the heads in any disputed point. My notes became much swelled by rumors of jobbing among the higher powers, which, though sometimes defeated, were generally so skillfully conducted that they more frequently succeeded. I had collected sufficient materials for publishing a pretty large volume, but was about that time attacked by a sudden and dangerous illness, which afforded more opportunity for serious reflection than I had before accustomed myself to. I was apprehensive that I might have inserted some things, which I believed to be facts, upon questionable authority. I feared that the papers might fall into the hands of some bookseller whose only object would be gain, to obtain which he would not scruple to whitewash men whose characters ought to have been drawn in the darkest colours, or to speak in extremely harsh terms of others on whose eccentricities I only wish to pass a slight censure. Too ill to admit of delay, I decided on committing all my papers to the flames, nor did I for fifty years regret the step. Gunning died before his task was completed. His memoirs terminated abruptly, but the most interesting part of his work has happily survived, and the earlier reminiscences, as is customary with the aged, are more full and vivid than the later. I shall not attempt to moralize or discant much upon his story, but I intend to give it in his own words with a few remarks in passing. End of section 10